Hello and welcome to the latest exciting episode of Pulp Today. Sip from the red wine. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see the entire row of bottles. Uh, good, good wine from Trader Joe's that was cheap, so I uh, bought, you know, a dozen. Today might be a little bit all over the place, which is appropriate because I want to read from and talk about an anthology. You know, we all have books that change the course of our lives or were a huge influence on us. And that list can be a, a fairly predictable one of great classics. Sometimes there's the obscure thing. But for me, as a teenager who was a huge science fiction fan in the 1970s, before that was quite as socially acceptable and common as it is today, um, I found this book in the junior high school library called Deep Space. I apologize to the audio listeners because they will not see that beautiful cover. The cover itself, uh, John Berkey is the artist. His style is all over, uh, and his work itself is all over sci-fi paperbacks from the 60s and the 70s. Um, his ubiquitousness and his famously cool-looking spaceships, um, probably why Lucas hired him to do the uh, cover of the mass market Star Wars paperback, the one that came out after the movie, not the one that came out before the movie, um, which is a classic uh, John Berkey look. And uh, also did, there was that King Kong poster that everybody had from the terrible 1970s remake. He did that as well but mostly cool sci-fi paperbacks. And so much of my reading of science fiction at that time had been a handful of the big name writers, uh, Bradbury and Heinlein and Clark, a little bit of Asimov. And it was, you know, Bradbury's the best and uh, he's a poet. Heinlein kind of struck me as, you know, like those British boys own adventure stories, but with science fiction in them good, but not, you know, not literary masterpieces, and I don't know that I found the science fiction elements in them particularly brilliant, even when I was a kid, though I could be coloring this with, you know, <laughs> how I felt about uh, some of the writers I grew up with later and down the road, but I, I feel like I hadn't really read serious science fiction and I don't mean when I if I say adult I don't mean adult in the in the cheesy sense uh but adult in the sense I've written for adult uh with characters that were recognizably human and interesting and a little more three-dimensional and science that was you know some of the stuff that I was reading had the obvious uh the obvious limitation of having been written before certain scientific discoveries were made. And the point of this being called Deep Space, actually, Robert Silverberg, the editor, in his introduction, refers specifically to the fact that this compilation, which he put together, I think, in the late 60s, early 70s, is are all stories that take place literally in deep space. They don't really revolve around the Earth very much, or the Earth is off stage for want of a better word, as a character in the stories. And he talks about the fact that the reason for this is that 
he's putting together this anthology after man has walked on the moon and broken the sound barrier and developed atomic power and all of these things that used to be science fiction and you can't write about dying civilizations on Mars anymore because we've seen Mars and there are no four-armed green men on it, more's the pity. This is, you know, back in the day we used to call it hard science fiction and it was when I was discovering the genre and there are eight stories in here, all, all of them very good, all of them very different from one another. Um, You've got Bloods Are Over by Chad Oliver, which is kind of an anthropological science fiction story. Noise by Jack Vance, which is this... A, a guy is stranded on an alien planet and gets so used to the experience that when he's repatriated back to Earth, he can't stand it anymore. Or on his way back to Earth, he gives up and runs back to his his weird alien planet. Life Hutch, which is a Harlan Ellison... It's a very simple killer robot story, but it's a clever one. A Ticket to Anywhere by Damon Knight, which is a about the trope of Stargates. I'm going to read you a little bit of that. The Sixth Palace by Robert Silverberg, which is, a, again, a very clever, for want of a better word, heist story that also involves a killer robot. Look, we can get away from some tropes, but we can't get away from killer robots. La Lungomina by Gordon R. Dixon, which is a, you know, takes place in the world of alien and... Uh, Outland, in a way, it's about, you know, basically construction workers out in deep space coming to the end of their uh, their hitches. Uh, the Dance of the Changer and the Three by Terry Carr, which does an amazing job of doing something science fiction rarely does, which is explaining an alien culture in a way that doesn't seem like recombined elements of Earth cultures, but is just truly alien. And Farce and Tourist by uh, A.E. Van Vogt, which is about deep space travel and is good stuff. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk about, it's an, ex it's an expression you don't hear as much in, uh, anymore, but in the 70s you heard it a lot, and in the 80s, before CGI, before you could film anything that anyone could think, we went to science fiction novels to experience things that couldn't be experienced, to have things described to us that had never been seen by human eyes. And the expression used was a sense of wonder. Uh, science fiction, good science fiction, some of it, aspired to create a sense of wonder in the reader, a sense of experiencing something for the first time that you can only experience in science fiction or possibly fantasy as a genre a completely new set of environments and experiences. Anyway, I want to read from uh, Ticket to Anywhere. In, uh, in this story, Earth has implemented a planet-wide cultural change where every human being has a, an internal policeman, for want of a better word, uh, something that monitors your every thought and keeps you from doing bad things. And one man, our protagonist, uh, was born resistant to the internal policeman, and he has found out that there's these, this buried alien artifact that may be a stargate on the planet Mars, and he escapes the Earth, goes to Mars, he meets the caretaker of the artifact, a man named Wolfert, and he decides to 
you know, he's told that some have gone through the gate and never returned. And he's there to let Earth know if anything comes out of the gate. But not particularly to stop anyone from going through it. So he lets our hero, whose name is... I want to say his name. Falk. Walk through the Stargate. And he sees a couple of dead worlds with fallen civilizations on them. And his last stop in the story is a green, verdant planet with lizard people walking around on it. He startles them and hides away from them in a place they can't get to him. Uh, but he scares them enough that they they pack up and run away from him, leaving him to watch them go, these, these lizard men. The airboat lifted and went away, and most of the lizards followed it. One straggler came over for a last look at Falk. He peered and gestured through the wall for a while, then gave it up and followed the rest. The plaza was deserted. Some time passed, and then Falk saw a pillar of white flame that lifted, with a glint of silver at its tip somewhere beyond the city, and grew until it arched upward to the zenith, dwindled and vanished. So they had spaceships, the lizards. They did not dare use the doorways either. Not fit, not fit, too much like men. Falk went into the plaza and stood, letting the freshening breeze ruffle his hair. The sun was dropping behind the mountains, and the whole sky had turned ruddy, like a great crimson cape streaming out of the west. Falk watched, reluctant to leave, until the colors faded through violet to gray, and the first stars came out. It was a good world. A man could stay here, probably, and live his life out in comfort and ease. No doubt there were exotic fruits to be had from those trees. Certainly there was water. The climate was good. And Falk thought sardonically that there could be no dangerous wild beasts or those twittering tourists would never have come here. If all a man wanted was a hiding place, there could be no better world than this. For a moment, Falk was strongly tempted. He thought of the cold, dead world he had seen and wondered if he would ever find a place as fair as this again. Also, he knew now that if the doorway builders still lived, they must have long ago drawn in their outposts. Perhaps they lived now on only one planet out of all the billions. Falk would die before he found it. He looked at the rubble the lizards had left in the middle of the plaza. One box was still filled, but burst open. That was the one that caused all the trouble. Around it was a child's litter of baubles. Pretty glass toys, red, green, blue, yellow, white. A lizard abandoned here by his fellows would no doubt be happy enough in the end. With a sigh, Falk turned back to the building. The door opened before him, and he collected his belongings, fastened down his helmet, strapped on his knapsack again. The sky was dark now, and Falk paused to look up at the familiar sweep of the Milky Way. Then he switched on his helmet light and turned towards the waiting doorway. The light fell across the burst box the lizards had left, and Falk saw a hard edge of something thrusting out. It was not the glassy adamant of the doorway builders. It looked like stone. Falk stopped and tore the box aside. He saw a slab of rock roughly smooth to the shape of a wedge. On its upper face, characters were incised. They were in English. With blood pounding in his ears, Falk knelt by the stone and read what was written there. The doorways stopped the aging process. 
I was 32 when I left Mars. I'm hardly older now, though I have been traveling from star to star for a time I believe cannot be less than 20 years. But you must keep on. I stopped here two years, found myself aging. Have observed that Milky Way looks nearly the same from all planets so far visited. This cannot be coincidence. Believe that doorway travel is random only within concentric belts of stars, and that sooner or later you hit doorway which gives entry to the next innermost belt. If I'm right, final destination is the center of the galaxy. I hope to see you there. James E. Tanner, native of Earth. Fox stood up, blinded by the glory of the vision that grew in his mind. He thought he understood now why the doorways were not selective and why their makers no longer use them. Once, a billion years ago, perhaps, they must have been the uncontested owners of the galaxy, but many of their worlds were small planets, like Mars, too small to keep their atmospheres and their water forever. Millions of years ago, they must have begun to fall back from these. And meanwhile, Falk thought, on the greater worlds now just cooling, the lesser breeds had arisen, the crawling, brawling things, the lizards, the men, things not worthy of the stars. But even a man could learn if he lived long enough, journeyed far enough. James Tanner had signed himself not Terran Space Corps or USA, but native of Earth. So the way was made long and the way was made hard, and the lesser breeds stayed on their planets. But for a man or a lizard who could give all that up, all the things he called life for knowledge, the way was open. Falk turned off the beam of his headlamp and looked up at the diamond mist of the galaxy. Where would he be a thousand years from today? Standing on that mode of light, or that, or that? Not dust, at any rate. Not dust, unmourned, unworthy. He would be a voyager with a destination, and perhaps half his journey would be done. Wolfert would wait in vain for his return, but it would not matter. Wolfert was happy, if you called that happiness. And on earth, the mountains would rise and fall long after the question of human survival had been forgotten. Falk, by that time, perhaps, would be home. That is Damon Knight's Ticket to Anywhere from the collection Deep Space, which came along at a time when I, I guess, needed to know that science fiction wasn't all poetry or boys' own adventure stories with ray guns but was capable of uh, deeper things, like that sense of wonder. Uh, I chose that story of all the stories in the book because it, it most reflects that idea of the sense of wonder in that it makes you think about, you know, would you take that step? Would you walk through a doorway to be on another planet and never see home again? Would that kind of experience be worth it to you? And it's a, it's a question. It's a question worth pondering. And I leave you with that question. Step through all the doorways, kids. See you on the next exciting episode. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.